We'd like to begin this episode by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that we record our interviews on. Dermot and I are on Gadigal, Gundungurra and Tharawal country. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We recognise their continuing connection to the land and waters and thank them for protecting our coastline and ecosystems. We also extend that respect to all First Nations people listening to this episode. Welcome to the sixth episode in the spring series of Goodwill Hunters, which asks, can Australia be a sustainability superpower? I'm your host, Dermot O'Gorman, CEO of WWF Australia. And throughout this series, I've been joined by my co-host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, founders of Goodwill Hunters. WWF is proud to be collaborating with Goodwill Hunters on this series in the lead up to the COP26, the UN's climate change conference in Glasgow from the 31st of October to the 12th of November. You can join the conversation via at Goodwill Pod or at hashtag Regenerate Australia. In this episode of the series, I speak to three formidable female leaders. Our guests are Sissy Gore-Birch, Sheridan Waitai, and Sangeeta Maghabai. Sissy is the Executive Manager Aboriginal Engagement at Bush Heritage Australia. She is a Jaru Kiji woman from the Kimberley region. Sheridan is the Executive Director Strategic Relationships and Innovation at the Nangatai Kuri Trust Board. Her tribal affiliations are Nakanikuri, Te Rarawa, and Tainui. Sangeeta is the Director of the Wildlife Conservation Society's Fiji Country Program. She holds a Doctor of Philosophy in Coral Reef Ecology. This episode is a conversation between three passionate leaders on the importance of Indigenous ecological knowledge, building resilience to climate change, the importance of gender in conservation, and why traditional ecological knowledge must be at the heart of managing country, whether it's Australia, New Zealand, or the Pacific. There is a powerful connectivity in hearing from lived experiences that goes beyond borders. I can only say that in this episode, I am very grateful to have been part of the conversation and that I have learned an awful lot. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. As world leaders prepare to gather in Glasgow for the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has sent out a dire warning. We've caused permanent damage to the Earth's climate. Without significant changes, the average global temperature is very likely to rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels by 2040. The experts are clear. World leaders must commit to an ambitious reform agenda to stop adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. But what do those changes look like? What does all this mean for the most vulnerable communities? And what is Australia's role in climate leadership? My name is Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder and executive producer of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you by the Worldwide Fund for Nature, Australia's most trusted conservation organisation. 
Through its Regenerate Australia campaign, WWF is calling on Australian leaders to make Australia the world's leading exporter of renewable energy by 2030. Thank you for joining us for this crucial conversation. We invite you to contribute to the conversation online at Goodwill Pod and WWF Australia and hashtag Regenerate Australia. Thank you for, for joining Goodwill Hunters, Sissy, Sangeeta and Sheridan. Let's just get started. We are living in a period of great change and I'm keen to hear from each of you your personal reflections on what it's like, what it's been like navigating conservation with communities through a, a COVID-19 pandemic. Sangeeta, perhaps we could start with you. Uh, incredibly challenging for us uh, in places like here in Fiji because it hasn't just been COVID-19. It's been COVID-19 and at the same time we've had three highly destructive cyclones in 12 uh, in 12 of the last 12 months. And so it's um, and because of COVID-19 we are not able to go to the field to be with our communities. So it's just the longest period of time that we've spent away from them and feeling quite, you know, helpless in terms of wanting to get out there and help them with cyclone recovery, but we can't travel out to the sites. And Sheridan, you are in lockdown at the moment. How has it been for you uh, in the last few months? Yeah, and so we're on a, a level two now, so we've got lots of movement, um, but restricted movement. Um, I, I would have to say that for the environment, it's been really beneficial, um, but for our monitoring and our ability to access our, our outer islands has been real challenging to just have the presence and be sitting and yeah as you do absorb absorbing the environment and understanding its flow um so COVID tsunami warnings along with earthquakes um up on the Kermit have all been a part of this year and it's been completely challenging all around yeah thanks and and Sissy so just in regards to where I'm located at the moment up in the East Kimberley in Kununurra, things haven't really changed at all. We we um, haven't had any cases, thank God, touch base. Um, you know, it's about 50% Indigenous um, population up here and we're pretty protected at the moment. There's a lot of land that we can access without any restrictions. But it's actually made a huge change in my life personally with COVID. So pre-COVID, I was living out of my suitcase. So I'd be travelling to meetings to Melbourne, to Sydney, to Canberra, to, you know, to Queensland, even interstate, uh, international. And that was pretty hectic. So it was really a healing process for me to be in this place and with COVID and not travelling. But I definitely feel for everybody in lockdown and, you know, families who were always sort of out and about and really um, think about them and we're very lucky to be located up in the East Kimberley and the Kimberley region at the moment. Thanks, Sissy. That's a great insight. Um, so let's let's move on. Um, Indigenous ecological knowledge has been a really central part to this season's uh, Goodwill Hunters. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's been said that it's sort of there's a trend to see this Indigenous knowledge built into conservation much more than in the past and this blend with Western science. Um, so I, I guess a question maybe starting back to you, Sissy. Um, 
do you see a, a growing trend of of indigenous led organizations and we work closely with fire sticks and black dogs black ducks but there's obviously others um that is sparking an interest in you know uh, indigenous ecosystem management um what what do you see as working and, and what do we need to do more of mm. yeah interesting conversation around that space um I mean, when I think about it, um, economics and also, you know, traditional knowledge has always been spoken about and done for 60,000 years plus. And I guess it's, you, you look at the sort of the, um, the pathway of Indigenous people of this nation and other nations is that, you know, we had management of country, we had management of the land and the sea and there is, you know, people present on country observing and practising these things that we are talking through with fire sticks, with savannah burning projects right across northern Australia, uh, with black ducks, with, you know, talking around the, the grains and the usage of grains and um, sustainable agriculture. I think it's a fantastic initiative and I think definitely it needs to continue with the support of our, of our um, I guess, our leadership. And also it needs to be recognised um, as First Nation people and just constitutional issues, legislation really sort of stops and deters some of that stuff from progressing forward. And I think we really need to look at the willingness to be able to adapt to these changes and to welcome those conversations to come to the table. And now just with native title and with different land rights that have come forward for Indigenous people of this country, it's really given us an opportunity to be at the table, to be able to be part of conversation and discussions and decision-making. And being a part of those conversations have really um, supported the, the movement of Indigenous, um, you know, businesses to come forward and initiatives to be able to come up with, you know, innovative ways of working in with the Western systems and also with um, traditional ecological knowledges. But I think we are progressing, but I think there needs, still needs to be a lot of investment from the you know, whether it is the federal government, Commonwealth government or the state governments, but also looking at philanthropic partners and like-minded value partners to be able to jump on board with this because it is making a difference. And there's this all these historical events that we need to get through with um, agriculture and the clearing of the land and the soil types and the damaged lands that we're working with to be able to get back to the basics. Sheridan, sure, how does that compare to your sort of experiences in New Zealand, which are different, but, you know, I'm, I'm keen to hear what, what your thoughts are. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I was to see around, you know, thousands and thousands of generations and years of just knowledge, um, and it is. Um, I think where we're at it has been where Western science um, needs to create the space where they're, they're not necessarily in it. Um, so our knowledge systems, our Mātauranga Māori at times is just that. It has its own value, its own mana, we would call it, in its right to be on its own. We have a lot of um, views around Western science where it needs to be integrated, where, where Westerners think, oh, you need to integrate Mātauranga Māori and, and Western science. Well, Actually, you don't. If if there are opportunities where they complement each other and um, they they support um, 
I suppose, the new knowledge that you're trying to find on how to improve that ecosystem, then that's good. But at times they don't necessarily have to be together. But what's really important is, is that traditional knowledge is honoured as the forerunner. So it's the Indigenous leadership, it's the Indigenous researchers, um, and it's about the Indigenous stories. Like for us, it's around reconnection, remembering that we've been locked off our land for generations, you know, and then it's about how do we restore ourselves with that land and with that water and those things that are in, inside, um, that we have an intimate relationship. In creation, we, we're born of them, so we can't be separated from them. Um, and then there's this reimagine part because um, we can always imagine ourselves in wellness and imagine ourselves in our environment when it's well, but we often have um, Western science trying to, trying to describe it to us and then trying to measure that for us um, <laughs> without listening. So I, I have to say that there's a lot of liberal guilt here, eh? You know, like since we've had social media and a range of different platforms where Indigenous voices are being heard globally, there is a bit of a, oh, oh there's a bit of a, a, a liberal guilt where, oh, now we need to include them. <laughs> because if we don't, oh, my gosh, you know, that doesn't look too good for us. So, yeah, I've experienced all of that um, in my days and, and obviously my grandmother's days and the days of my great-grandmother and the, you know, goes on and on. Um, but we're at a point now where we privilege Mataranga. We privilege our own knowledge. Um, and those that want to work in on our whenua, on our land and in our water, if they don't want to, then they don't get to come here. <laughs> it's, it's quite simple, you know. Um, gone are those days. Gone are those days where you cannot see the sun, the moon, the winds and the rains and then come and put a lighthouse on our land because you are scared of hitting into the rocks. You know, it's like it's like that. Like all those knowledge systems are there and Western science is like this great lighthouse that tries to shine its light above all of us. It's like, <laughs> you really knew what you're doing. You wouldn't need a lighthouse. <laughs> I love that lighthouse, that analogy. Um, Sangeeta, do you want to respond respond to that? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think, you know, there are lots of, for us, we have the locally managed marine area network um, that exists in places like Fiji, but also other parts of the Pacific. And I think, you know, when I listen to the other two speakers, you know, there are differences in that, you know, for example, for us in Fiji, 88% um, of our land is actually under, you know, customary ownership. We recognize sea tenure. And so those valuing Indigenous knowledge systems is, uh, um, I feel almost is placed at a higher value than the, than the science, to be honest, because especially if you go out to rural communities, but also even people in the urban center, there's a real valuing of that, of that, of that knowledge. And I think that the like the indigenous Fijians in Fiji, there really are those environmental stewards um, because they do have remarkable insights, knowledge of like animals, plants, ecosystems on the doorstep that have been passed down from generation to generation. And, and so for us, it's almost in country disrespectful not to recognize this knowledge. Um, and so 
we never try and miss out on this. It's kind of fundamental to any community-based work we're doing. Um, and I often say that, you know, when you talk to and work with our um, communities here in Fiji, they really are our original marine biologists of, for example, our oceans. Um, the other thing I think that's kind of important is that I think that I, what I like, which I think is really important for other places is I think we can really show through like the locally managed marine area network how this kind of local stewardship is really critical to make any kind of progress on conservation. And local buy-in can mean like working with indigenous groups in Australia, New Zealand, but it also to me can mean working directly with the communities living on the doorsteps of that, of that um, resource. Um, yeah, and then I, I, one of the things I've been thinking about is that I think is really important because I feel like it's getting lost in the currently in the global dialogue around biodiversity and climate change is that we have to become much more open to kind of other visions or other ways of doing conservation. And for example, in Melanesia context, conservation does not mean like locking those resources away or what's called fortress conservation. You know, for Melanesians, you know, conservation is all about maintaining culture, customs and traditions. This means they have to be able to access those resources. And so identities, attachment to place and well-being are interwoven into kind of land and marine scapes. And I think that having more of that in other places, I think is going to be kind of critical for conservation moving forward. Yeah, Dermot, I just wanted to, um, you know, just the stuff that both Sheridan and Sangeeta are talking about, you know, the Western science and also the traditional ecological knowledge, indigenous knowledges, you know, like just listening to that, like we don't have to integrate that, but that's just seemed to be the forced terminology and language for indigenous knowledges to be accepted we have to accept the different languages or the discussion and the terminology around integration. And, you know, just with these current systems that are set up in place at the moment with land tenure issues and, you know, reconnecting with land or even returning of country through all these different mechanisms of land rights, native title, um, purchase properties, you know, private landholders, you know, these are great starts to that conversation. And I just think, you know, the government really needs to step up in regards to this, in regards to the policies and the legislation and the constitution is to really look at the definition of how we actually work together with First Nation people, especially in Australia, and to be able to take this as a serious conversation and moving forward. Um, you know, things are definitely changing and I look at the FIRE program that's happening right across, you know, northern Australia, right across Australia is, you know, we're talking about right-way fire, right-way approaches, and Indigenous people are leading some of these, you know, this this sort of these different methods of how we're doing business on country and they're taking it internationally. But we're not recognising our own country of the work that we're doing. So we're having to go to international conferences and conversations to be able to get that international recognition, whereas our own country doesn't recognise that and our knowledge-based systems. So we would we would share that with you as well, Sissy, that we've had to go out to international fora. And thank you for having me. Because <laughs> these are classic examples of um when you have the government conversation, it's it's really challenging. Um that's a real big conversation with lack of any action. Um, but our starting point for us has been on the on the ground. 
um, one by one, group by group, in terms of scientists. And um, like I, I could get anything from twelve um, to to fifteen research proposals in a week sometimes. Um, and my questions back to them is, well, basically what do they think their research is going to do? So one, how is it going to be of benefit to this plant in the first instance? How is your research going to be of benefit to the wider ecosystem? And how will that build research, how, how will that build capacity of the Indigenous people? What value are you giving to the Indigenous people? So if they can't kind of answer those questions... Or if they don't even have the courtesy to go, yeah, I, and I've had real awesome um, people say, you know, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, to add on to that too, you know, there's this huge rollout of um, competency. So when we're working in this space as Indigenous people, we're working with partners who say they value the work that we're doing, but they're not culturally competent. You know, and this is where, when we're looking at that valued partner, we need to look at the cultural competency on do they value the work that we're doing? Do they value, you know, and acknowledge the, the knowledge systems that already exist for 60,000 years plus? Are they willing to actually work with us and not force us to be able to integrate our knowledge systems into that Western systems? Or are they just willing to work with us as partnerships? You know, it's like we're having to give away our whole freedom to be able to go through this Western system instead of them just taking us for who we are through that whole process. It's like selling a painting. So you go and buy a painting and then, you know, if you don't have a story connected to that painting, it's not, it doesn't add value to anything, but they want to know the life of that whole painting and who did it and when and why and, you know, when it comes to an Indigenous painting. So to add that extra value of the price, they're not willing to just buy a painting without a story. They want a, the whole life story of it. Right. Well, look, it, it, I think... Redefining, you know, that integration issue, I think, is is really important. And and as Sangita, you said, in Fiji, it's slightly different because it, it's more of a starting. The indigenous knowledge is more of a starting point. That complementarity piece, Sheridan. I think what is what does that what does a complementary piece where uh, you've got Western science helping indigenous knowledge? I think is a good question. I've I've worked in conservation for thirty years, and I'm. I'm trying to learn how that works off a whole lot of pre-biases that I've learnt from my university days about how you approach things from a Western science viewpoint. So um, I wanted to, to move on a little bit and pick up on two things. First of all, you, you mentioned sort of uh, natural disasters and, and um, uh, the links to climate change in the introduction. Um, the and we know that you know indigenous communities um, often can be heavily Im impacted by natural disasters and the impacts of climate change. Um, it's also that the role of women in uh, both those uh, in the, those indigenous communities have not been as recognised as as they should have. And I think my, my question to you is: Do you see an increasing recognition of the role of that women play in conservation and delivering sort of uh, traditional knowledge ecosystem management? Um, and how is climate change going to make that more complex? Yeah, uh, I think we're still kind of at the early stages 
when I think about how people the approaches they're using in terms of the way people integrate and think about gender, so social inclusion, um, justice, um, when it comes to dealing with, with climate change. I think we need to try and really get the message across that, you know, if we don't look at climate change and community resilience, for example, through a gender lens, I think we just lose this massive opportunity to kind of fully engage both men and, and women in a dialogue around the key things that we need to, like on adaptation and mitigation and the need for innovations um, in these spaces. And, uh, you know, my concern is that, you know, due to sort of the kind of gender norms and gendered power relationships, in reality, what we have is women still being very much left out of discussions. Um, and for me, when we do when we do that, we just lose that opportunity to bring in that full range of kind of innovative thinking that is needed to tackle the, the challenges ahead. So in other words, you know, I always describe, well, you know, how are we going to address these really hard, complex issues if we're only going to use the intellect and ideas of 50% of the population? It really just mathematically doesn't make sense. So I think we still need, I don't think people quite understand how to think about climate change through a gender lens and how do you integrate it in a in a really genuine way. I'm happy to go, Sheridan. Just um I mean just the conversation around climate change, I guess again that's a sort of another Western sort of term and language. And you know you hear the stories of our old people, they talk about things that were passed on and stories around the changes of the levels of water and, you know, the the plants and the seasons and sort of what comes through that perspective or their eyes or their lenses because of those stories that were passed down from, you know, many thousands of years. And hearing that, it's like, yes, we've been through some of these changes. We've seen some of this stuff. And, you know, some of that, not, that knowledge is really, really um, important for us to keep this conversation going around climate change and things are increasing because of the you know the population and the demands of um, developmental impacts um, the agricultural space the pastoralism space the, the clearing of land the mining the extraction of water that really contributes to you know the the bigger conversation of you know climate change and the hot fires and not managing them and for us people to be displaced at the very beginning of you know, with colonisation being pushed off our land and not having that opportunity to manage country. So when I think about climate change, I think about all those different impacts that really impacted on the way um, Indigenous people have managed country and those responsibilities were taken away. But to where we are now, the space is changing, but also trying to get back into that space of decision-making governance and looking at all these structures and looking at the impacts of the development decisions that are coming down on a regional level. And I think, you know, something that I've sort of been thinking about and talking and discussing it with a lot of other people is looking at those place-based plans. You know, um, you know, Sheridan, you talk about that, you know, one family at a time or one, you know, person at a time. And it's just exactly that. We're looking at our place-based plans and looking at what is it here that we have. What are our assets? How do we protect that? How do we work with different valued partnerships and to really add value to that on a regional scale? And using those that data, you know, like we talk about data sovereignty to really protect our knowledge and to protect our own systems because, you know, Indigenous people are the most well-researched, you know, 
people in the world and for us to be able to have data sovereignty and access to our country and our land and sea again to be able to take that knowledge back I think it just empowers us to be able to sit at the table and to be able to negotiate and to look at the bigger picture when we're talking about climate change it affects all of us there's no discrimination there's no racism in that at all and for us to think about the roles in making you know informed prior to you know informed um, decision-making processes, we need to be prepared. You know, we've been pushed off for a long time and we need time to be able to get our information together, our facts, and to be able to get our country back to where it was and to be able to understand the effects of climate change and the impacts of development in these regions. Carolyn, your thoughts on gender in conservation in New Zealand? Well, actually, let's start with probably the climate change part first, is because where I'm from tribally, we, we're born out of constant change um, in, our, in our lands and oceans. So we're, we're quite a small um, tribe in numbers, but we have around 1 million square kilometres of land and ocean. Um, so we're quite vulnerable because it's more so the behaviours of others in the world than it is about our behaviours at home. Um, and for us, it's about how do we have, a, how do we amplify our voice or how do we get heard around um, the behaviours that are happening around the globe are accelerating what normally would have naturally happened over a thousand years. And we would have adapted over time um, as mana whenua, as, our, as we do as Indigenous people. But at this pace, it's very, very hard. It's, it's really hard. So we're actually quite vulnerable to, because of others and others' behaviour. And in terms of the gender conversation, I mean, how can you how can you not have, you know, gender balance? So we have major issues at a local government level, um, at an agency level around gender um, equity, and also, and it is rising, and also as as a Māori woman, I'm probably the fourth one that look at employing before a Māori man, uh, before a Pākehā man, um, then they'd consider someone else before they'd consider a Māori man, before they'd consider me. So that's how it actually works here in, in Aotearoa, although there's always something that's improving. But from an Indigenous perspective, is um, men can't function without us. And we can't function without them. So even right at our children, as we're, we're pairing them up for their purpose and their roles into the future, there's always a male and a female, a cousin or a sister, a brother and a sister. Like they have to move complementary to, together. Like I have certain male cousins that for specific purpose are right next to me. Like we just cannot function without each other. I have to do certain things to keep them safe. They have to do certain things to protect me. But ultimately, our mother being Papa Tūnaku, um, I'm her daughter, so I have the right to speak for my mother. And every man knows that. Every man that is a man <laughs> knows that the daughter will always speak for their mother. So Fitira is our ocean, and that's the female side of Tangaroa. Again, I speak for my mother. Yeah, so... The, the roles aren't about, they're so complementary and they're so reinforcing that they're, they're really powerful. It's, it's like that's how you move. 
And then when you move complementary like that, the rest of your nation moves with you. Yeah. So it's like, how could you not have gender um, balance in, in anything that we chose to do? Yeah. But can I can I ask, because we have this issue, I mean, we, we see a lot of, we have a lot of discussions about the complementary role that men and women play in local communities, but the systems we work in in Fiji are still very patriarchal. And so what it means is that, sure, they recognize, okay, women fish, they do food security, they're critical around climate change in these spaces and very important around disasters. And there's, so there's that, but then at the end of the day, when it comes down to who makes the decisions, it's still massively challenging for us because we have this sort of working within these cultural systems, they're very patriarchal. The men have historically made the decisions, but then the women's voices are sort of being left out. And yet at the national level, we've made commitments towards gender equality. So there's kind of this, I guess we're trying to bridge these two worlds, you know, on what our values and principles are kind of nationally uh, or what we might commit to through even global um, commitments. But then it's quite still quite challenging, I think, for people working on the ground is how do you then work in systems that maybe are patriarchal? Because we sort of want to encourage different voices. We know the value that women's voices bring, but it is sometimes in some places it's hard because their systems don't allow those voices to come in there. And I'm wondering whether any of you sort of have those similar challenges or whether there are just different systems. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we, we've we've had colonisation too. So we have definitely had that within our culture that there's been a paternal um, sense where um, our men have behaved quite like um, Western men. Where um, and that's taken us a long time and generations to unpick and and un, undo. Um, and we're not quite there yet. To be quite honest, we still have quite a lot of moments where there is that, that amongst you tribally where it matters and and I feel I feel your pain, Sengita, is um, what's normalised tribally and then you head up into an agency and organisation led by white mouth <laughs> that doesn't see you as an equal. Yeah. And that's when that's when I found that silence speaks my truth, you know. Yeah, and others will speak for me, and eventually he'll figure out he needs to come back and talk to me, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, and then you just find all these other things to do to prove prove um, the value of your indigenous knowledge. Mm. Yeah, Sangeeta, just listening to that, I mean, like even just within Australia, there's just so many different layers of cultural, um, I mean, like if you're working in the desert, you know, there's all these different cultural practices that are that currently still exist. Um, there's a role and responsibility for men in these spaces. So the women hold those spaces of the women and the men hold that space for the, um, the men. Um, and, you know, it's just the Ranger program is really allowed um, those systems to be able to work together. And I think it's really added value to the way we manage country, having a role and responsibility for Indigenous women rangers in those different roles and Indigenous men to work alongside and protecting and making decisions for those different sites. But it's just, I think 
in regards to the there's laws or law always exists, you know, and those our principles and our values, that's always going to be there. And some places haven't lost that and some places have. And again, it's just about, you know, reconnecting with those systems, bringing those systems back. So it is a it is um, you know, these opportunities through ranger programs, land rights, native title have really given those opportunities to sort of come alive again. Right. Sissy, you, you've mentioned sort of policymakers, decision making. I think Sheridan, you mentioned that as well. Um, and Sheridan, you you mentioned that climate change is happening faster because of of global global emissions. Um, preparing communities to deal to be more resilient to that fast changing future is always complex. How do you how do you see how do we need to improve the interactions between communities that are living on the living on the uh, living at the edge of climate change real climate change actions and those policymakers that are far away in in room in boardrooms or offices that are forming the type of policies that you know shape what communities can and can't do do you have any any thoughts on that maybe you talked about it earlier um so we've been quite intentional around bringing um, Western science in at a community level, so what we call citizenship science, and but that's again led by um, our traditional families, and we we do like biological audits um, within an area to understand what's going on in there. So scientists can bring all their families, our communities come. Um, our, our local families are all there and we just basically camp for like three or four days and we live and breathe um, nature together. And, and through those night talks and evening sessions and storytelling and, and facts and finding, um, we, we've been able to, to get a shared narrative that we're really quite comfortable with. And, and then we've been obviously using social media and a range of mechanisms to promote what's going on. But first of all, it's about understanding what we've got um, and then having the ability to map changes together and observe together. Um, so that's kind of attracted a whole range of different investors, um, different contracts that's helped us to employ our own people, also employ other people. Um, and really what we're focused on is how do we build resilience of the land and also of the people. So we plant, we plant, we plant, we plant. Yeah, it's all about how do we build the resilience of our forests um, and, and on the water as well. So we've used that citizen-based knowledge and all that momentum to um, do quite significant science research. So we've got... Um, a very big research project out on Langitahua, the Kermit Islands. Um, yeah, so that's quite game-changing for this government. It will inform big oceans policy and a whole range of work. And it literally started by just building relationships at a community level, scientists by scientists, science community with our communities, until we got this big vision. Yeah, big projects. Mm.
Fantastic. Sissy, do you want to talk a little bit about how to connect community with policymakers and decision makers? Mm, yeah. Uh, I mean, like, this is really, really challenging, especially when we're talking around the remoteness, access to some of these communities, um, looking at the different levels of um, understanding and education, especially around the English language. Um, so language is sometimes a barrier and that understanding of that language and looking at the the different layers of decision-making processes. So, you know, I always sort of share this when I'm talking to people around one, there's, a one, there's about six layers of decisions and discussions. You as an individual, we as a community, us as a region, the state, Commonwealth and international interactions with conversations. So we need people at every single level to carry on those conversations and to be able to feed into the different systems of decision-making to be able to get an understanding and where we sort of fit within those systems. And, you know, I, I use the, um, the, the Ranger program as a mechanism to be able to look at bringing in the Western practices but also having our knowledge carriers there to be able to have that shared conversation with our young rangers and then to be able to make sense of these systems so there was a process through the healthy country planning process through the open standards so one of our partners within East Kimberley or the Kimberleys was Winnable Gumbra and they were the first ones who sort of had this conversation around developing a plan to really understand the aspirations of traditional owners and bringing in that western sort of standard system through the open standards and hearing the voices of traditional owners of that area and understanding, you know, what your landscape is, what you're working with, and to really get a big understanding of bringing people of different um, ages and family connections and individuals. So that was the family for that group. So working within your own language group makes a huge difference, but also trying to get people to think about that because we're dealing with social and, you know, social issues and justice issues and equity and, you know, hearing our voices and people are dealing with the the impacts of colonisation and being removed from their houses. To be able to prioritise some of the discussion on those certain days, it's really hard. So you have a collective of people who are based on country who can see and observe the differences of the different seasons and to really observe, you know, the bush foods and the the seasons of, you know, the tidals that the tidal waters that are coming in, and we've got people working on the cultural heritage management and the rock art sites to really look at managing and monitoring those different sites and looking at the habitat and the, the changes in the landscape, you know, whenever there's a huge rain and the erosion, and so we just it was more it's more about having people present on la on land and country to be able to understand what is happening on the outside to be able to see because a lot of our people have been pushed off country. We live in urban areas now, but to be able to reverse that and to start getting people out on countries, again, changing that mindset, changing those different sort of thinking processes in this is important, you know, what? how do we prioritise this when we've got colonisational impacts versus conservational impacts versus climate change? So there's all these different conflicting conversations and priorities in people's lives and you know it's it's a long process and it goes back to that education and that support and bringing in indigenous you know interpreters to our schools and and a um an element of having a school based out on country and 
Wadakin has now um, up in Northern Territory, um, Dermot, and you're probably familiar with this, with their new schools and their learning on country schools have opened up. And I think, you know, to be able to keep people on country, we need to look at this modelling that really best suits our people and where they're best placed. Great. Thanks, Sissy. Sangeeta. I still feel a bit of the oddball out in this conversation because I think for us in the Pacific it is quite different because the Pacific is really governed and really um, by Indigenous people. And so like places like in my own country, uh, we don't have as much of the separation between the people and government in that um, if you like I work for an international NGO, you know, most of my staff are Indigenous Fijians. I, we go out and do community-based work, working with our communities, and we don't tend to do that in isolation. We tend to do it in partnership with our government colleagues, and those government colleagues are going to be Indigenous Fijian as well, be able to speak the language and, you know, have their own attachment to place and, um, you know, uh, cultural background that they bring to, bring to the, the discussions. So I think for us that kind of links between communities and, and government probably happens a lot a lot more or easier than in other places. Um, but the, the challenges are is, is that, you know, as our communities have gone from being more isolated, traditional communities to this, suddenly Fiji is becoming more globally connected. You know, we've had massive tourism to the country. So the country has, has changed. We find communities' aspirations of what they want have also changed. And so I think our communities are in this place where they're trying to figure out how much do they retain of their, you know, their traditional values and practices and ways versus then how do they engage in this kind of, uh, you know, modern, whatever you want to call it, national economy, this globally connected, connected um, world. And I think the challenges for them is that, you know, is finding that balance between the both. And they're, we're finding that within, within communities, there are, you know, there are, you know, differences in what communities aspire to and need. And so a lot of our work is really trying to get, figure out what they collectively want, you know, want to do and to talk through, I guess, what they want to invest in for themselves and, and their future. How much of their natural resources do they want to retain um, for the services that provides them, whether it's clean water, food, traditional medicines, versus how much they want to use their resources for also livelihoods, money, because they have the same aspirations. They want to see their kids, you know, they want to have access to health services, um, education, et cetera. Certainly, Sissy, that sort of builds on that conflicting priorities that you talked about, you know, the communities they're dealing with, and then how you come up with a perhaps a collective vision about where the community wants to, to go. Um, does that does does that resonate for both UCC and and you Sheridan in, in Australia and New Zealand? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, it's I guess how you sort of navigate yourself and what organisation you sort of sit with and that stigma behind what you carry with who you are, I guess, to be able to sort of um, to navigate through those different circles and how do you sort of bring information and knowledge back? I mean, like I, I speak just with my own experience as a executive um, manager for Bush Heritage Australia and um, also a chairperson of Ballangar Aboriginal Corporation for the last probably eight and a half years in going, the whole, going through the whole process um, with 
uh, lobbying and, I guess, working through the native title process, getting our Indigenous protected areas determined and also, you know, having able, you know, the ability to get some rangers on board to be able to manage our 2.6 million hectares of country or land and sea and to be able to be in a position where we can actually make those decisions and how do we come up with a collective approach regionally. So, I mean, I grew up on a community, isolated community, you know, in a very poor environment and with family and community and connections. And when I look at that model, that sustainable sort of modelling, I think about, oh, my God, like we were living the dream. You know, none of our people had money and jobs. It was more about living off the land and looking at a more sustainable way of harvesting and sharing. Whereas today, like, where is that? And we didn't think we were poor. We thought we were rich because we were, we had fresh fish. We had, you know, fresh takings from the land and we understood the seasons and, you know, we were rich with knowledge and information sharing from our old people. And to be able to be in a system today where, Everyone's working in silo. So I guess I'm always carrying this information in the back of my head and, you know, my heart to be able to think, okay, when you're an Indigenous person, you know, at the end of the day, unfortunately, when you're in this space of conversation, we would like to think that we can make friends, but it's always a very conflicting conversation. So we're not always having people who value us because we're either an angry black woman or with that, you know, that misinterpretation of, well, actually, no, I'm not an angry black woman. I'm a very assertive woman who've lived with experiences. So it's that interpretation of who we are as individual in that space we sort of sit in. And people get really uncomfortable when, especially in this Western system, when they're actually challenged about things that we know. And I think it's a new conversation that needs to continue to happen. And this is where I feel that empowering of women and young people through education. And, you know, my children are always saying, mom, you know, stop it. You know, you're being, you know, you're speaking too loud or you're, you're being too angry. I was like, no, I'm not. So even my children are growing up into this Western system saying that I shouldn't be able to speak out of turn or to be able to challenge the systems. And, you know, it's again, going back to that mindset of this is a space we're in today how do we get like-minded valued partnerships to be able to come on board with us to be able to look at the bigger picture? You know, Indigenous people right across the world have been struggling for a very long time. And to be able to, you know, come together and, you know, we, we just want equity. We want equality. You know, we want fairness. And this is what we fight for on a continued basis and justice. Great. Thanks, Sissy. Now, in a couple of weeks, we have a climate cop, you know, and I think what you just talked about, Cece, I think is is very relevant. There's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about where is the indigenous voice at the climate cop. Um, what is each of you? What is your message to this year's climate cop? So I think that in all these global summits, these big discussions and decisions are being made on the on the planet. I think we need to better recognise that many Indigenous communities are actually at the forefront of a lot of these issues, whether it's biodiversity conservation or the forefront of climate change issues, whether they're disproportionately affected by some of the sea level rise, like, like we are in the, in the Pacific, or whether it's actually in the way that they're already managing the systems uh, you know, around them and, and keeping them as resilient as possible to better 
combat these changes coming up. And I think they can really teach us a lot about, you know, living and coexisting in harmony in nature. But in those forums, I just worry there's just no mechanism to have those voices heard or if they're heard, I don't want just one speech, yeah? I actually want them properly kind of valued. And I think we just haven't figured out a way in all of these um, is how do we create platforms and spaces for indigenous knowledge and voices to be heard, but in a genuine way that actually influences decisions, not just a tick box. We had an indigenous person there, we allowed them to speak. Um, right, now we'll go on to our you know, deliberations. So I think to me, this is, I just think something's got to change. If people really care about Indigenous people, then it's got to be real and genuine. And no more. We need to start calling out people that use Indigenous people like a tick box to think that they've done their bit. So totally in support of that. Also, um, one of the things I thought COP could be strong advocates for is, and, and this is this is not just them, this is IUC and this is everybody, is equity around um, research and investment in into any type of science or research that goes on and, and make, making sure that that IP actually belongs with those Indigenous people. Um, that whole doctrine of um, discovery is really old. It's a turn-off. Like, you know, because there's, there's a whole lot of stuff that Western science hasn't discovered. It's already been there. So how do they reframe that narrative? But I think my, most of all, from my perspective, it's um, how do we advocate, one, to have our, our voices at all those decision-making tables, but more so about giving direction. So a really good starting point is when you're going in to work with a community, bear in mind that they all work too. So how are you going to be able to resource them to even participate and engage? That's a, that's a whole shift that needs to happen because researchers and groups, NGOs will come in and they'll have all these wonderful things, but it costs time and money for us to participate in that as well. So we want to be valued at the same level. Yeah, I was thinking about this too. Um, I, I remember years ago, I think there was a COP forum in uh, Paris, and I think that was the last one I was supposed to go to, but I ended up not going because my family said not to. Um, but even just, I mean, like I think about some of the themes that have happened here this year um, with Recon Reconciliation Week, you know, um, the reconciliation theme was more than a word, reconciliation takes action and urging us to be able to move towards a braver and more impactful action. So I guess not to really think about, it's not about sitting on the fence, it's about being more active in this space, looking at the representation of Indigenous voices right across the right across the world, but also, you know, thinking about taking action. You know, like where are the voices? What what is that collective approach from Indigenous people around the world? And how do we make sure that you know we are coming together as a collective voice before these forums to be able to come up with some sort of um, united voice? to be able to hear, I mean, you know, Sangeta, you talk about, you know, the the work that you're doing in Fiji. I think that's awesome. I've been to Fiji and, I, you know, I was sort of blown away and I was like, I want to get back to basic, simple life. And But just how do we come collectively as Indigenous voices from around the world to be able to come up with actions, to be able to present to these, 
you know, global forums because at the moment we're sort of all coming in individually with our own sort of thoughts and ideas. But I think if we're able to be able to have an Indigenous World Conference or Congress again that was happening in Sydney, um, you know, like if we can bring the voices of Indigenous people to come together collectively on really empowering our voices to be able to take that to those global forums, I think it would be awesome, you know, acting on things. So if people are going to be sitting out there making decisions and the recommendations coming from the COP um, forum, we want to make sure that the Indigenous voices and aspirations are being heard and acted on. Three very strong messages. Um, I think our time is up now. Um, so uh, Sheridan, Sissy and Sangeeta, thank you so much. Um, I love the we don't need a lighthouse, Sheridan. I think that that is super important. Um, Sangeeta, I think, as you say, Indigenous communities are at the forefront and at the front line of those impacts, but they can teach us all enormously. Um, but I think, Sissy, you said we need a new, new conversation to be had about uh, how this needs to happen and we need equity. And I think that is probably a good place to finish up. Thank you, all three of you so much. It's been a really enlightening conversation and a lot of fun too. That was episode six of the Goodwill Hunters Spring Series. Join us next week for our final episode in the season. We'll be talking to Minister Dan Van Holst Pelican, Minister for Energy and Mining in the South Australian Government, along with award-winning journalist and author of The Carbon Club, Marion Wilkinson. We'll see you then.